there. Welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, episode 16. Today is April 20th, 2014. My name is Sebastien Couture. I'm a user experience designer and developer based in Lille, France. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. I'm a Bitcoin entrepreneur based in Berlin, and I'm also the founder of the Bitcoin Startup Spelling Group. And uh, we have uh, two very exciting guests here today, and perhaps you guys can introduce yourself. Uh, Stefan, you want to go ahead? Sure. Hi, I'm Stefan Thiel. I'm the Director of Communications for Ethereum. Um, I've joined the company in January, and my role involves mostly community outreach, um, identifying uh, talent in the community, putting developers in touch with entrepreneurs and investors, uh, communications, basically. And we have Max K on the show, down from Australia, so pretty international today. Uh, Max, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm, uh, well, I like to think of myself as a researcher. I'm currently working on some blockchain-based stuff and distributed exchange. Cool. Well, it's very exciting to have you guys on here. We have on the show today, we don't have as many news topics as we often do, which is great because it gives us lots of time to talk about the projects you guys are involved in and kind of go really deep on, you know, the things you've been doing and especially Ethereum as well, because it's a project that I think both Max and Stefan are, uh, well, Stefan's very interested in and Max is at least following and also very interested in working on kind of things related to that. Um, maybe So guys, maybe we should just try to keep the show at under three hours. Y- yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, try, try to, try to, be uh, as, as brief as possible when you're discussing these things because I know you can go on for hours and hours. <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> so just uh, one brief announcement. Uh, there is, you know, as many of you know, the, the Bitcoin Foundations Conference is coming up in Amsterdam. Actually, uh, let me briefly ask you, Stefan, are you going to be there? Uh, I myself won't be, but I'm sure we'll have representation on site. Uh, we have uh, Jeffrey Wilkes, so lead go developer, is uh, Dutch and lives in Amsterdam. So um, it'll be great for him to attend. Yeah, so uh, that's indeed. So I'm going to be there. And there is blockchain.info started this thing, which they call the first annual blockchain awards. And it's basically awards given to different things. So the most impactful charity, most creative video, etc. And there's a category called most informative podcast. Now, of course, we are slightly biased here, but we think we are, we try our best to be very informative. So if you can nominate us for this award, that would be awesome. Uh, and it's being given out in Amsterdam. So if you want to support us by uh, nominating us, then you can go to blog.blockchain.com just kind of scroll down and you're going to see first annual blockchain awards there uh, and then if you click on that there's a submission form so you can put your name in uh, your email address and then on category you can select most informative podcast and then who are you nominating you can uh, just put episode Bitcoin and that'd be awesome right so um to get started, perhaps we should get our, our kind of news out of the way so we can talk about interesting projects. Um, there's been some news on China. Uh, Sebastian, do you want to like kind of talk about what's going on there? Or Do, do we have to cover these topics? <laughs> no, Ch- Ch- no. China, China has been a topic on pretty much every single episode, just like Mount Gox, so we do have to talk about it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think Bobby Lee is going to get upset otherwise if you don't talk about China. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there has been some news coming out of China. Um, it's, it's nothing really new. I mean, some new exchanges have uh, been forced to stop taking, uh, well, performing withdrawals because uh, their banks have stopped working with them. We still don't have a clear indication whether China is banning Bitcoin or not, which I don't think we will get. Uh, but uh, more and more exchanges are ceasing operation. But the price has gone back up a little bit, you know, um, since then. So I don't think it's room for much concern there. I think there was this deadline, rumored deadline that came up of April 15th. I don't know where it was from because this wasn't any official statement, just as we usually don't have any official statements from there. And people thought, now they're actually going to ban Bitcoin because they've only said it or indicated it in some way a dozen times and nothing has ever happened. And then April 15th passed and once again, nothing happened. Uh, but then I think on the 17th, some some exchanges said, uh, or some banks shut down some exchange accounts. But who, who knows? I mean, I guess we will see. At if one point, we will see some actual, you know, some actual clear decision where they either say they can operate in a way or they'll be banned. But I guess this is what we're really we're waiting for. And it's the same thing that we're waiting for here in France and in many other countries is like clear directives, right? So people want to know how they can operate, if they can operate, how they can operate. And then from there, then we'll make decisions as to uh, uh, whether or not we want to abide by that or contest it or what have you. And so this is where all the uncertainty is coming from. Not from, not because of the you know, China's central bank is um, being particularly harsh on exchanges, but just because there's no clear directive into what actually is uh, uh, feasible and how companies should operate. Well, I think what's quite interesting on this point is that it seems that these news from China have a lot of effect on the Bitcoin price. And that maybe made some sense in November when they were doing a really huge part of the Bitcoin trade. But now I was checking a few days ago, it's down to like something like 9% of the trade volume is in the yuan Bitcoin market. So it does, I don't really understand why this is such a, seems to have such an effect on the price and the sentiment. I, uh, personally, I don't think it's particularly important, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see if um, when you when you have clear directive, like you said earlier, uh, like for example, in the UK, we have the HMRC saying Bitcoin is potentially a currency. Um, and in the US, they're saying, well, maybe it's treated as uh, property and it will be taxed with property tax law. Um, how that's going to influence startups and where they're going to want to be located? Because last year, I remember in March, uh, people in the US were saying, well, we'll be much better off in Europe. Uh, where we don't have those issues with potential regulation. And now I think we're going to see the opposite happen, where people will say, well, actually, property tax is a lot more advantageous than being uh, you know, taxed as uh, on your income. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where startups are going to start forming. But I think it's, it's in terms of taxes, I think it's quite similar in Europe, isn't it? At least in Germany, basically... It's the same situation as in the US. It's, it's like a prop, you know, you have to pay capital gains tax and that kind of thing. And UK as well, I thought, no? I think we had we had uh, someone on the show, Sian Jones, recently, where we talked about this in depth. 
Yeah, absolutely right. It's uh, the uh, HMRC uh, recommendations have been that it was indeed to be treated as a currency in the UK. Okay. Um, what's what's regulation? I'm, I'm interested, Max. What's uh, the regulatory um, position in Australia? Yeah. So the there's been a lot of speculation that Bitcoin is going to be taxed under our GST laws, which is like just sales tax, which means that. Uh, if you were, say, a business that wanted to accept Bitcoin, then as per normal, you know, when you when you sell your good, it's there's 10% GST. Uh, but then when you go to sell your Bitcoin, you're also then charged 10% GST. So there's been a little bit of sort of uncertainty about that. However, the tax office hasn't come out with a ruling yet, and they have just sent out a whole lot of letters to the majority of Bitcoin businesses that I'm in touch with, asking them to come, and they're going to have a meeting uh, in a few weeks. Um, to sort of start to decide what to do. So it's uncertain and we're going to, I think we get a ruling at the end of June. Oh, great. So, but they are in touch, which is really nice. Yeah. And there's quite a few Bitcoin ATMs down there, quite a few Bitcoin startups, no? Uh, there's, there's, so there's, I think the most popular startup that people have heard of is Coinjar, which is basically the same as Coinbase in the US. Um, there's a few other startups around and we're just starting to get some ATMs. I think our first ATM was like November last year and that was a Lamassu, but they've been very slowly trickling in. There is a business that's just opened up, uh, an ATM in Pitt Street Mall, which is like in the middle of the CBD of Sydney, which is great. So they're starting to come. That's, it's very interesting. I think it will be very interesting to see, you know, in what countries we will have these hubs of Bitcoin innovation and startups. Uh, coming out of no because there's so much activity in different places and i do think we will see you know we'll see some places taking the lead i guess you know silicon valley is obviously one and uh it seems like in, in canada there's quite a lot of activity in some some places in europe i think london there's a lot going on in berlin there's a decent amount going on but yeah yeah, I'm quite fearful for the uh, the state of startups in Australia. I mean, just tech startups in a, like Australia is a bad place. If you if you've got a tech startup, then you don't do it in Australia to start with. So, I unless we have uh, favorable tax laws, then I can't see any reason for people to stay here. I mean, I personally want to leave as soon as possible. Wow. It's uh, being it's you, you don't realize how annoying it is being on the other side of the world to everything else. That's very interesting. What, what are your plans? Where where are you planning to go? Um, so if, uh, one of these projects pans out, then, uh, I'm going to, so when, when the conference is on, I'm going to check out Amsterdam, um, as sort of a potential place, but otherwise, uh, somewhere in Europe. Have you ever heard of Ben? <laughs> um, I've got a, uh, I've got a friend down in Berlin, actually. Um, he, he touts it quite highly. So that's definitely an option. Yeah, no, you should, uh, you should come by here and, uh, yeah, check it out. Actually, I was... Just contacted by, you know, Stefan, um, you know him obviously by Gavin Wood. That's right. Uh, he, he loves he, Berlin and, uh, he's he, moving here in a few weeks. That's right. He's got, he's got big plans for Berlin, uh, and, uh, potentially, uh, build up quite a bit of the C development team for Ethereum over there. That would be very excited because I've been, uh, in contact with some people and we've been kind of brainstorming about putting on, uh, basically a Bitcoin center here, you know, a bit like what the guys in, in Toronto did. So, uh, you mean that you mean Bitcoin decentral? You mean, yeah, something like that. <laughs> I call it Bitcoin center because I guess it is a maybe decentral center, but <laughs> yeah, so uh, embassy or whatever you call it, but basically 
a big space for co-working, for events, for startups, incubators, uh, things like that. Yeah, I think so. Bitcoin Decentral was really, really cool to visit. Uh, I went there last week for the Bitcoin Expo. Uh, Anthony kindly let us stay there. Um, what was really cool is they had this big Bitcoin sign outside, you know, like a neon sign. And people in the street, it's a, it's a pretty active street. Uh, people would stop and take picture. And sometimes people would just walk in and ask questions. Um, that was really cool. Yeah. Um, let's all move to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Was it like, like in uh, in France, uh, Sebastian? So France is uh, well. Things are moving along uh, slowly, I guess. <laughs> But that's uh, you know, as you know, uh, that, that is the French way, I guess. When you're trying to disrupt, um, uh, when you try to disrupt the existing incumbents. Uh, so, but you know, there there is a lot of stuff that's been going on for the last few months. I mean, uh, I've seen. Um, Quite a bit of activity in the last few months, especially coming from Paris. The French Bitcoin Association uh, was founded uh, a few months ago. Uh, there are a few startups in Paris. There's a very active Paris meetup. I, have, of course, started the LID meetup, and uh, that's been going on uh, quite nicely. We, we just did our third meetup with 50, well, 50 people came. Um, so the 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 startup uh, community is starting to just kind of starting to uh, take off. The media is still a little weird about it, although um, although you know, the perceptions are changing for a lot of reasons, I think. And uh, that's kind of the role of the French Bitcoin Association also is to be a kind of spokes. Uh, spokesperson uh, for Bitcoin. Recently, we just had a really interesting um, announcement. Uh, Monoprix, which is uh, uh, a, a French uh, grocery chain, um, announced that they were going to start accepting Bitcoin, at least on their website, uh, w within the year. So that was really kind of interesting and helped to uh, kind of, for the layperson, see this as a kind of interesting and uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, yeah it's kind of kind of a legitimate use for Bitcoin from a, a real French company right so uh, a lot of the media has been focusing on the negative aspects of Bitcoin the French central bank issued like you know warning statements and everything and this is kind of the first time where like uh, a serious French company Uh, and quite a large one for the, for that matter said that they were going to start accepting Bitcoin. So I think in the public perception that kind of, you know, people kind of go like, Oh, huh. So Monoprix is going to accept Bitcoin. Okay. Maybe this is, um, something that we should be looking at. Or, or maybe they're going to think like, Oh, maybe Monoprix is going to start selling drugs online. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's been some activity, but, uh, Uh, e even French people will tell you, like people that are in Bitcoin here in France will tell you that uh, things are kind of, well, we, we are a bit behind you know, countries like, like Germany, for instance. And in fact, like during some hearings, uh, with, uh, I forget which government entity, uh, there was, there was a Senate hearing, right? And one of the uh, speakers there said, uh, well, you know, you know, France is kind of, behind on this and uh, Germany is taking these positions and we don't want to be behind Germany. And that kind of 
really uh, hit right. home with French politicians. <laughs> yeah, that, that seems to be like the way to get action going in France, no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Germany Germany is already ahead on this. And then they're like, oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's dive into Ethereum, no? I think... Okay. Yeah. Sure. Well, I can I can give you a quick overview. It's uh, it's a nice segue from from Monoprix. Uh, I think uh, one of the way I describe Bitcoin uh, is that what makes Bitcoin interesting is not that my grandmother, who just happened to be in France, uh, can buy her eggs at Monoprix with Bitcoin. That's not what gives it its um, its its power to me. At least I, I don't see it that way. I think it's more about how Bitcoin allow you to have control over your funds at all times, and you're responsible for those funds. A bit like cash. If you drop your cash, it's gone. Uh, same with Bitcoin. But you don't have to trust the bank uh, to hold your Bitcoins or to hold your funds or to execute those transactions. It's all secured by this idea of decentralized consensus at scale. Um, decentralized consensus at scale can be applied to other things. And that's where Ethereum comes in. It's about applying this mechanism where people are in control of their funds and personal information at all times uh, can still transact internationally and, and contract internationally with anyone they wish to. Uh, but it's applicable to anything that can be mathematically represented. So it can be uh, voting, domain names, financial derivatives from options, futures, uh, contracts for differences and so on, intellectual property, um, agreements of the most kind, that kind of stuff. Um, that's Ethereum in a nutshell. It took that concept of decentralized consensus at scale and it's building a brand new uh, programming framework and distribution mechanism for what we call dApps or distributed applications. So yeah, there are, I, oh, Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, there, there are a lot of projects that, you know, aim to do the same thing. I mean, I, I can think of something like six perhaps. So... Do you want to talk a bit about what makes Ethereum special or different versus... Sure thing. So, uh, absolutely. So, you know, if you look at things like Colored Coin, the idea of Colored Coin, you have this special client that listens uh, to the blockchain and based on certain type of transactions, the way they're formed, um, it would uh, assign shares to, to a share value to Bitcoin, for example. So now your, your Satoshi was worth one share. It was worth one Satoshi plus the value of whatever the share was. Uh, but that requires a specific client and it's pretty limited. And then you have guys like Mastercoin, for example, who took that concept further and they said, well, what about if we say, well, in the transaction, the first number will be, say, the, uh, the denominator of an asset, like a share or maybe even a physical asset, like a, a, what would maybe match a, a car, for example, or physical property. And then the next number would be one, and one means buy or sell or whatever. And then the next item means from, and then the next item means to. And now you have yourself a very nice decentralized market on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, which is pretty neat. Um, but that's a feature. Um, that's a feature in the sense that if I create a, a language, a syntax to trade uh, this type of stuff, I'm limited to create applications that will use this language and I won't be able to break out of the box, so to speak. Uh, Ethereum is taking that concept further by saying, well, actually build whatever you want. Here's a programming language. And that programming language, um, it's, it's assembly code that's read by a virtual machine, uh, executed on all the nodes at all times. Uh, and in order to write the programs, you can use higher level languages that you may be familiar with. So that could be things like uh, Python, for example. We call it Serpent. 
because it's Python. Uh, we have things like LLL, which is Lisp-based language, and a new one called Mutant, which is uh, based on the Go language. So if you're a programmer, a web developer, an application developer, a Java guy, a C++ guy, you can go and you start to be able to program not only that money, but also uh, programming uh, relationships on the blockchain and benefit from this blockchain immutable database that can't be corrupted or colluded against. I had a question about this. So I, I, we all, we often talk about Ethereum and, 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 uh, so it's, uh, it's potential for creating decentralized applications. But so how does one get started? I mean, when I go on the Ethereum website, I, I don't really kind of get a like get started button where I can, uh, uh, learn how to code, um, these, uh, these applications. Like, uh, how, how, how does it work really from a programmer's point of view? How does he get started in building these applications? Right. So uh, today is very early days. I mean, one thing to remember about Ethereum is Vitalik was playing with a concept, you know, last year towards the second part of last year. Um, he released the white paper to uh, uh, his closest friends in November. Uh, in December, the team started to form. I joined in January. It's early days. What we've done is instead of doing a, a, an Ether cell, which people used to refer to as the IPO back in January, we thought, well, actually, let's put some code in the developer's hand before Bitcoin is starting to be exchanged, right? Um, what we started to do is release software on a regular basis. It's proof of concept software. We have a C++ client, a Go client, and a Python client, and those three programming language for smart contract running on all three. Um, at the moment, I would say the core audience for Ethereum would be developers that are comfortable to work without documentation. Once we're further down the development process, and that's probably going to be around July, August, uh, we'll issue tutorials, we'll have Code Academy sites, we'll have video tutorials, and it'll be a lot more friendly, and also the GUIs will be a lot more friendly. At the moment, um, it's, uh, it's the kind of stuff that you'll enjoy as a hardcore developer wanting to play with the edgy stuff. Um, how, how you get involved uh, when the product is released, well, there's uh, two ways, really. You can be a user and be using your application. It's going to look like the Android App Store. You click, you double-click an app, it's, it gets downloaded uh, on a decentralized network as well. So the GUI itself is decentralized, interacts with the underlying Ethereum blockchain, which is decentralized, and now you have those uh, corruption-proof applications that you can play with, and it'll, it will be a beautiful GUI written either in HTML or Qt, if you're familiar with that. It's another sort of visual language. Uh, if you're a developer, you can simply write smart contract in the language of your choice on the platform of your choice. And as I said, we'll have plenty of documentations and uh, hopefully hackathons and, and training sessions and things like that. So what's the timeline for this kind of Ethereum app store? And, you know, where it be at the kind of level where someone who's is not a developer can actually start using some of the stuff. Well, I mean, basically, that will be, uh, in order for a user to use this stuff, it needs to be actual practical applications that have value. And that value will be derived from the launch of the mainnet. The mainnet, uh, currently we're operating on a testnet. The mainnet would be launched uh, probably towards the end of the year. Uh, we say Q4 uh, of, of, of this year. Uh, I would say personally expect December would be a fair, a fair a month to expect Ethereum to be launched. Very exciting. Now... It's often difficult to, uh, you know, to kind of explain, you know, it's difficult enough to explain Bitcoin to people, but then you come with Ethereum and it's, it's even more difficult to explain this. Maybe can you 
speak about, let's say, the first two, like, really basic applications that Ethereum can do and that you need something like Ethereum to do. So, you know, you, you can't do it in another way or if you can do it in another way, it's clearly inferior. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, it's a bit like trying to say, what can you do with Java? Uh, well, you can send the Mars rover on Mars. You can write an enterprise uh, financial application. You can probably build a virus. You can even write a gaming app. Um, so, you know, what you can do with Ethereum is anything you can do with uh, a Turing complete programming language. That said, uh, there's some pretty good use case I've seen done at the hackathon that we had uh, last week in Toronto, uh, the best uh, application, or I, actually I would just say my favorite one, really. My favorite one was these guys, they've built uh, Ethereum on top of a Raspberry Pi. The Raspberry Pi is connected to a physical door, and they have a web interface, and it's called Airlock. Uh, Airlock is a decentralized Airbnb. It works exactly like Airbnb. You have a reputation system. You can browse the room. It looks beautiful on a website and so on. But what happens is you carry this uh, potentially, say, this card that identifies you as a user. And once you've purchased the room in a completely decentralized manner without paying fee to a centralized operator, the door will open as you swipe your card, for example, automatically. So you have this $10 billion valuation company, Airbnb, that can be disrupted uh, and so-called eliminate the operator from the equation. I think that's exciting. Uh, if you imagine that applied to things like Facebook, that you trust with your uh, personal information, information with your children's picture. And at all times, you need to always be confident that there's not a single developer at Facebook that's malicious, that Facebook is being transparently audited every week or every day. Um, you know, can you trust that? Uh, probably, well, personally, I don't think. Uh, just like, you know, Bitcoin is fantastic because you need to trust the bank. Uh, same thing for Dropbox, decentralized Dropbox. Rent your hard drive space or rent someone else a hard drive space in order to... Um, well, to earn money or to simply pay less than Dropbox and not having to trust Dropbox with your special files. Um, I think that's where the real disruption is going to take place. Uh, eBay is another example. Why pay all those auction fees where you could just transact peer-to-peer? -peer? So so the use cases I'm seeing here is we take these these services that are performed by, you know, big internet companies and you essentially try to decentralize them and then make them perhaps cheaper because you can drop their fees and you also reduce the amount of trust you have or you get rid of the trust you need to put in those services that, of course, can be abused. That's right. Uh, what Ethereum really is, is a zero trust interaction system. It's uh, Gavin uh, Wood, our, our lead uh, C++ developer and, and CTO, uh, describes it a bit as Web 3.0. So you have uh, four components. You have static content publication, that's distribution of web pages or whatever Qt code over a BitTorrent type layer. Dynamic messages, that's Ethereum messaging layer, uh, that again, you don't have to trust into, but you can stay ensured that it's uh, uncorruptible. Uh, trustless transactions, well, that's very similar to Bitcoin, and the integrate GUIs that we're currently building for POC5 to be released next month. Uh, in terms of use cases, going back to your question, well, I mean, you know, the obvious one also is financial derivatives. You know, the big problem with the, the volatility of the of cryptocurrencies is that we don't have proper decentralized derivative exchanges. Uh, and the ones that are out there um, are 
going back to regulations are a little bit iffy in terms of you know what's possible to do or not. Um, in a true decentralized exchange that would trade derivatives, I, I'm hoping we'll see you know things like contracts for differences backed by Bitcoin. We'll see uh, options and futures backed by Bitcoin uh, or backed by Doge for all, th- of all things. It doesn't really matter. Ethereum is like this glue between applications. Um, we're talking to uh, people at Ripple, where I have people from Mastercoin on a channel. Um, uh, Dave Johnson was actually the chap who, uh, who uh, oversaw the, uh, the the judging on on our hackathon uh, last week. So Ethereum is not really a competitor to all the system. It's more like a partner. Uh, we're partnering with BitCloud, with MateSafe, um, with uh, OpenLibreNet. So from wireless mesh networking to decentralized storage layer, uh, Ethereum sort of glues everything together in terms of logic. So one of the things that occurs to me then is, uh, like, I love the idea of Airbnb being on Ethereum, but if you're running a massive derivatives market, then I don't want to have to go through all that to just so I can open a door. Uh, so, sorry, I don't, I don't quite follow. The derivative market is, is one application. The Airbnb application is another one. So it's like little icons on your, on your Android-like app store, so to speak, your Ethereum app store. Uh, you, either, you either use one or use the other. Oh yeah, but I mean, I mean, full validation-wise, like there, there has to be nodes that are fully validating the blockchain, right? Oh, I get you. So you're talking about blockchain bloat, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. So that's this uh, Vitalik Buterin, uh, the inventor of uh, Ethereum, has written a very good paper. I, I'll post the link in the channel later on about the uh, big issues uh, around crypto today. Number one, blockchain bloat. Uh, everyone on the Bitcoin network has to have all transactions from everyone else. Uh, so uh, if you take Visa, for example, uh, on, on Christmas Day, they do about 10,000 transactions per second um, on uh, on the Bitcoin network, you're limited by the blockchain, uh, sorry, by the block size, which is currently one meg. Now that can be raised, of course. Uh, technically, uh, Bitcoin could do 10,000 TPS if we wanted it to do, but it would grow the block size to something uh, rather unmanageable per individual nodes. Uh, so that leads to potential centralization. In terms of what we're trying to do with Ethereum, we have multiple layers of, of uh, size of nodes. So we'll have a uh, what the equivalent of an SPV node, if you're familiar with that, so a light node. We'll have a full non-mining node. We'll have an archive node. And we're trying to disaggregate um, sort of the, the data from the nodes uh, and in order to improve its scalability. But it's a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge for everyone and not just for Ethereum. Uh, the other thing is transaction speed. So our block resolution time is one minute, um, which is, you know, you could, you could say, oh, it's better than Bitcoin. Well, not really. One minute is still pretty slow in my view. How can we improve this further? What can we do to, to make this on par with a traditional transactional system? And maybe you don't need to. Maybe in that point, that's when you start looking at off-chain transactioning system like uh, open transaction which is also trustless um, and can do HFT so I'm interested because Max you kind of chimed in here and you also have some interest and involvement in Ethereum at least on some level can you talk a bit about that like what what appeal what appeals to define in Ethereum and what's been your involvement and what do you see doing going forward with Ethereum? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Ethereum, I, I read the white paper, either I, it was either really late December or really early January, and it immediately grabbed me as, you know, it's, it's, it's a, both ambitious and fantastic that it's happening. Um, 
my initial sort of uh, thoughts were like, oh, fantastic. I've had this this idea for a, a distributed market in my head for uh, nearly a year now. And when I first heard this, it was like, fantastic. I can I can finally, you know, build this really simply and easily. Um, so my initial uh, sort of involvement was I got straight into the contract side of things and started, you know, writing contracts. So I've written uh, both a, a market contract and a, a Bitcoin SPV contract. Um, and this was, this was quite early on. So the language was a bit different. Um, and I wrote some, you know, some things to start testing Ethereum contracts and stuff like that. Um, and uh, admittedly it, it's a bit different now, but, uh, but all the logic's there. Um, anyway, as the, as the language started to change, I, I decided since I, I'd basically gotten most of the architecture out of the way, um, that I'd, uh, I'm, I'm still sort of following this distributed exchange idea, but in a slightly different way. Um, ultimately, I mean, I think that Ethereum is, is fantastic as a place to start testing these ideas. Um, but I sort of became convinced quite quickly that it doesn't, or it, it may not be able to scale well enough to, uh, run some of the bigger applications that we've got, um, like, like an exchange. And that's because of uh, because of how much data they will produce, or because then the Ethereum transaction fees will make it too expensive, or what's what's the reason why it won't scale? Not not so much the data, but but when you start thinking about a distributed exchange, you've got to like basically the the task at hand is prove some payment happened off chain. Um, and that means that you have to be able to validate a, a foreign chain, whether that be Bitcoin or Litecoin or anything like this. And I started thinking about it. And the, if you take, say, Litecoin, for example, Litecoin's trying to be memory hard. Uh, and so if you had to start validating most of the Litecoin chain, and I mean, you don't need to, we can just say start it here is in, you know, use the last checkpoint and go from there. We don't need everything before now. Um, but when you think about validating the entirety of, of the Litecoin chain, that gets very, very computationally expensive. And of course, the, the resource of Ethereum, um, is both Ether, but then that's, that's used to produce computation. Um, and so it's going to be, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how, uh, Ethereum deals with some of the challenges about the, these sort of decentralized applications that, that add a lot of value, but are very computationally expensive. Right, that's, I, I think Max makes a very good point. Um, uh, it's very important to remember that when we say uh, Ethereum runs computation in a distributed manner, we're not talking about, uh, you know, Boink, SETI at home or folding product at home or even Primecoin type computation here. What we're talking about is, you know, what was on your cal calculator circa 1993. Uh, those are very basic logic gates. If else, do that, you know. Um, it's if you want to run uh, extensive computation, so say a distributed exchange, for example, or uh, an exchange at all, uh, an order book matching system, that's pretty better suited to an off-chain uh, mechanism and use Ethereum as a validation. Contracts aren't proactive. Contracts are reactive. They, they're like machinery. Uh, they're your arbitrators, so to speak. They're just ensuring that nobody cheated. Uh, they're not here to do uh, 3D rendering or anything of the sort. Uh, that's not what we're about. On the other hand, and what you could have is you could have a meta coin that's built on Ethereum. So say uh, the Stefan coin, that would be kind of cool. Uh, and the Stefan coin uh, would be issued uh, if people had executed a certain amount of say, CPU cycle on SETI at home. So you can reward users arbitrarily by issuing your own cryptocurrency, uh, a bit like a... Um, 
a brand coin, a bit like a loyalty point, so to speak. Uh, so that opens the door to new issuance mechanism that I don't think we've seen so far in the uh, altcoin world. Yeah, absolutely. It's I, I'm very, very curious to see uh, what sort of like new types of money people come up with. Um, I mean, I know we've like in the in previous to the cryptocurrency world, we had these sort of uh, complementary currencies, whether they be like frequent flyer miles or you know the Bristol pound or stuff like that. But now that we uh, can really like with with zero effort, someone can create a a user issued currency um, that runs with the security of the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, so sort of on, on that line, or that line, it's sort of similar to the Mastercoin argument, as in running with the security of Bitcoin. But now they can do whatever they want to it, and they get SPV, of course, as well. Absolutely. Well, that's what yeah, Mint uh, is, is planning to do with loyalty points. I've heard of others. Um, and uh, going back to Andrea Santanopoulos' uh, uh, paper yesterday about 15 million altcoins, I completely agree with Andreas. I think we are going to see 15 million altcoins, if not more. Uh, you know, you are your own currency. Currency is no longer a means of payment, but it's a means of representing your value. And you kind of like vote with your wallet on issues that you care about. So this is this is something I've been thinking about also uh, until since recently, and it's just kind of interesting to have uh, to have you guys on so we can discuss this. So I, I'm I'm interested in kind of like the sci-fi aspect of of, uh, of these uh, cryptocurrencies and especially these decentralized autonomous um, applications and, and corporations. These things these things that we've been thinking about, but haven't really kind of uh, been able to uh, illustrate we keep talking about uh, about DOAs and and, and decentralized companies um, Stefan you talked about this a while ago and gave the example of a decentralized Airbnb um, and you also you did a talk at Google recently where you uh, put forth a, a theory where you know, autonomous vehicles would also be running themselves can you go into a bit more detail as to uh, what kind of new models will emerge from this uh, and uh, th things that we can't really kind of imagine today, but that will most definitely be commonplace in five, 10 years from now or even less. Yeah, absolutely. So credit where it is due. Uh, the person who thought about these things first, I believe, is Mike Hearn. Uh, Mike gave a talk at the Turing Festival, I think it was mid last year, uh, where he described, uh, because as you know, he, he, he works for Google, uh, he described that self-driving cars are a reality. They're not science fiction. In fact, there's uh, studies that have been made that show that self-driving cars are most likely to be commonplace in 2050 that clean energy. Um, so there, the, the self-driving cars currently in Palo Alto will become uh, commonplace. And you can imagine a model by which maybe uh, Sarah, say, wants to go out tonight. She opens her Hello type application or Android phone. She calls the car. The car parks outside. She jumps in. The car starts driving her towards the nearest pub or club or whatever. Um, as the car drives, the car talks Bitcoin or Android phone talks Bitcoin. The car asks Sarah, would you like to go on the faster lane? Uh, because the car actually pays the highway uh, in order to use this faster lane, in order to reduce traffic congestion and so on. Um, so Sarah has the choice. She can say yes, she can say no. And then she arrives at her destination. The interesting aspect here is that the car 
is a mobile asset by definition. Therefore, the car can relocate itself to a more affluent town. It can relocate itself to a place where there's maybe more demand for its services, where there's less competition. And so the question is, who owns the car? Is it Google? Is it the Hello type app? Is it the car manufacturer? Well, the answer is neither. The answer is the car owns itself. The car owns itself because it was crowdfunded a bit like a co-op by a group of uh, like-minded individuals who wanted to see this car happen. So they went and they put money together, a bit like a Kickstarter, so to speak. But instead of receiving a free T-shirt for their efforts, what they got is they actually have shares in this uh, means of production, the car. And so obviously this is a little bit science fiction-ish because what if the car breaks down? Who's going to repair the car? What if it's on the side of the road, etc., etc.? Yeah, but, but you if- have other services that come in, plug in, and you have like these decentralized autonomous uh tow truck companies that will come and pick up the car and bring it to the nearest mechanic to have it fixed. Absolutely. This is, I mean, I I was recently reading, I I was recently reading uh, Ray Kurzweil's uh, The Singularity until my tablet broke down. So I'm (laughs) getting my tablet fixed (laughs) so I can keep reading it. Uh, But this is the kind of stuff that, that he talks about. Only he omitted to say that these systems would be based on, on this type of technology. Maybe because when he wrote it, uh, it, it, it hasn't, hadn't been uh, imagined yet. But, um, I, I really see the parallels between the, the singularity that he talks about where computers run themselves and kind of own themselves and, uh, these technologies that we're now starting to see emerge. Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing about this is uh, if you bring the model away from hardware, because that's a little bit far-fetched for now, it won't be in 10 years' time, but for now, if you bring the model back to software, now that's where it gets really interesting uh, because you could have a, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous application that's been built uh, by a group of developers in exchange of uh, receiving dividends in its profit that would then uh, allow for this uh, previously mentioned decentralized Dropbox uh, type of application where people would pay uh, for uh, storing their data encrypted and broken down into chunks, of course, uh, onto some other person's hard drive. And so technically, this uh, application does not need humans to tell it what to do. It just does what it does as long as it's financially uh, efficient and financially successful. And if it's not, it dies. And then another one comes up and replaces it. Uh, that's an interesting concept. Um, but it has, you know, the singularity is interesting and the science fiction stuff, I love it. Uh, you know, it, it's not... Omnibus technology, though, it, it can also be used for good. Um, one example uh, I quite like is this uh, website that you have in the U.S. today, uh, whereby people run errands for $5, uh, $5 a pop, not $5 an hour. Now, I don't know how many here are, are from the U.S., but I'm pretty sure you don't live well on $5 an hour in the United States of America today. These people are not uh, doing it by choice. They're doing it because they don't they, they, they need food on the table, right? Um, so what could be imagined is a system by which the sites are created by like-minded individuals and are owned by the people who actually run the errands. We can then define the price unlike a central operator that, by the way, takes a 30% cut today, while those guys still don't get benefits, but that's another story. Um, and, and so it actually is very liberating. 
Um, it's a means of uh, promoting entrepreneurship at all levels in any companies, unfettered by regulations uh, and by, uh, you know, this type of uh, sort of uh, greed that we're seeing on the Internet today. Uh, the dream of the Internet was everybody would become a content producer. Everybody would com compete with uh, movies from Hollywood. And the reality is today, well, you know, we're very far away from it. What we got was the NSA and PRISM. Um, I quite like this idea of a trustless, decentralized Web 3.0 where people own the sites that they use. Yeah, absolutely. Like the the eye opener for me when in your in your talk was when you talked about the uh, the hosting service that goes and finds its uh, the cheapest uh, hosting um, available, and that that was really the eye opener for me that that. Uh, well, now enables me to really kind of understand how these systems will work in the future. Yeah, that's that's Torje, by the way. It's uh, uh, invented by a chap called Gregory Maxwell, uh, who's also a lead Bitcoin uh, developer and contributor. Um, I think at the time he expected it to be in a, operating in a centralized way, uh, but you can imagine a decentralized Torje. That would be even cooler because then nothing can stop it. Yeah, absolutely. That's not a... Uh that's not a pun on JSTOR, is it? The uh, the journal uh, uh, compendium. I, I have no idea. I think I it's pronounced storage, actually. Uh, it's probably pronounced storage. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. Oh, okay. It's the French thing. Yeah, it's maybe I want to give a brief book tip here. So if you're there's um, a science fiction author named William Hurtling. He has some books uh, called uh, one is called Avogadro Corp. And I think it kind of plays to the maybe the more dark vision of where this could lead. Because in, and in the book, a, a company that sounds a lot like Google, uh, you know, they have this email system that optimizes email, and then it takes on a life on its own. And we, you know, when we when we read about these things, it's hard to imagine how would this happen, you know. Be, but then when you hear about something like Ethereum, I think what's what's very powerful is that all of a sudden you can have these autonomous systems that can take on economic functions. They can do economic transactions. Now, of course, I think that the, those dark scenarios are perhaps unlikely, and I think, or at least unlikely for the near future, because artificial intelligence just isn't there. You know, it's not like these systems are going to take on uh, a will of their own, interests of their own. But uh, if they did, then using systems like that, contract language and cryptocurrencies would be the way that they could actually start having all, you know, start controlling actual resources in the world, hiring people, all those things. So it's, it's, yeah, it is mind blowing where this can kind of lead. I like this idea that uh, uh, a computer program, and you're absolutely right, strong AI, uh, as far as I'm aware, does not exist to date. Um, we have weak AI systems, and that's okay. Um, but I like this idea that a contract could potentially issue a bounty uh, to human beings, a bit like Amazon Mechanical Turk, uh, stating, you know, look at this picture. Is this picture beautiful or is this picture ugly? Um and so you'd get a thousand humans getting rewarded for pressing the ugly or beautiful button, a bit like a split A-B testing. And of course, you could get rid of the outliers using uh, some type of machine learning uh, statistical analysis and determine with a pretty fair degree of accuracy if a picture is ugly or beautiful uh, by a machine. 
Um, that's uh, that. That's the sort of uh, futuristic topic I'm, I'm quite interested in myself. Yeah, just in in the what's interesting in the book is like where this thing goes because I think there's a second book which I don't quite remember what it's called, but you can find it if you look for William Hurtling. Uh, and there you start having different of these systems that compete, and the most valuable resource they start to have are data centers. So you know those systems they would hire humans to improve the data centers. They would hire uh, you know, humans to improve, like defend, defensive robots, etc. So it's yeah, it's it's very fascinating. Um, I think the, I think the catch is that a, a contract on the blockchain is not aware of its underlying environment, so it's not aware that it actually even exists. A bit like termites build this beautiful cathedral, whether it's in Europe, the United States, or Asia, or Africa, they all build the same beautiful cathedral. But I'm pretty sure if you were to interview any termite, they wouldn't be able to tell you what a cathedral <laughs> is. Yeah, we should get a termite on the show for next week. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you, you know, your point's very uh, important. There's no real sense, and it doesn't make sense to get scared of these things or think too much about them, because what would be needed for all those things to take on really that kind of dimension would be a huge steps forward in artificial intelligence. And if that's not going to happen uh, or until that happens, what we'll see instead is things like you're talking about, like the self-driving cars, you know, that have like economic transaction layers, decentralized Dropbox uh, or financial derivatives, all those things, which are fascinating and absolutely revolutionary on their own. Now, what I think is fascinating about this too is, I mean, you mentioned uh, um, artificial intelligence, Brian, but in, in effect, it's just mathematics, right? These things are just running off mathematics and making decisions based on on parameters that were uh, put in place by humans. But I think the important point here, yeah, it's a good point. But if we come back to that example before of the self-driving car. And then, you know, Stefan, you say, what happens if it breaks down? Now, if you programmed that before and said, like, you have something that measures it broke down and then this happens and you have that logic in the contract, fine, right? It can, it can adapt to that, but you will never be able to anticipate all the scenarios. So unless you have a system that is intelligent, uh, it's not, never going to go very far. I see what you're saying. Yeah. But I'd be interested in, in seeing if within those within that set of rules uh, that is defined by humans, if if patterns can evolve or if behavior can evolve. Like I'm interested in this kind of um, thought, this idea of uh, new patterns and and new behaviors evolving out of just you know like mathematics um and and true and false uh algorithms and if that's at least possible i think there's no reason that that sort of thing shouldn't be possible um i mean going back to the the self-driving car um i had this uh or there's this vision that i have that that of this future where you've got these virus-like pieces of software that inhabit these cars and essentially the car drives itself all it needs is a routing engine so these viruses are just complicated routing engines now when it uh if the if the car or if the if this virus is able to earn enough profit in order to buy a second car then it replicates itself but like you know replication with dna it's slightly error or it has a few errors in it a few little mutations um if we can get software to to that sort of point then i think it'll uh or hopefully it'll just take care of the rest 
You mean where a self-driving car buys a new self-driving car? Oh, yeah, but yes. then, but then, <laughs> yeah, or, or actually, right, itself yeah. on top, or, or, or smart property, smart property that actually owns itself, uh, a house that ends up buying more houses. <laughs> I think my brain just. So I, I think, think my I need brain room just left. <laughs> so, but let's let's kind of talk a bit about the uh, you know then more near term again. So, what do you think? Do you think, Stefan? or Max, that uh, financial derivatives or financial applications are going to be the first kind of like, you know, really ground changing thing? Or do you think it's going to be something like the decentralized Dropbox, that kind of thing? Or where, where do you think that this will have the most impact in the near future? I think uh, <laughs> I think water finds its own level. I think uh, where the pain points are is where you know we're going to see the most innovation. So what hurts people today um, is probably where we're going to see websites being created, decentralized apps being created. Uh, I like this. You know, I purchased an Oculus Rift uh, pre-ordered on uh, Kickstarter.com. That was about a year ago, something like that. So I got the old model right um, two weeks ago. Um, Facebook purchases Oculus 3 for $2 billion. Uh, where does that leave me? Well, I'm just sitting there with an outdated piece of hardware that they're currently replacing with a brand new piece of hardware. Um, and that's it. So if I had actually held shares and uh, received uh, uh, sort of my fair share in the uh, purchase of uh, Oculus Rift as being an early adopter and supporter of the project, I think I would have made a 148x return. And so would have everyone who invested in this initial dev kit. Um, I think this is where we're going to see uh, immediate change. I think people will create these websites, uh, these decentralized apps, and will say, hey, you know, do you believe in my project? Uh, go and get some shares in my project and, and get dividends. If I succeed, you succeed. If I fail, you fail. So then we're talking about the, the sort of fundraising thing, right? So uh, basically uh, give uh, companies a tool to allow people to participate and invest in the company, participate in their economic success. Absolutely. You know, how many times you, you're, you're, you go down the, you know, you're at work, you go down the street, you go get your hot dog and you notice that this guy behind the hot dog stand who's maybe independent is a, is a great business guy and you have so much hope for him and you think, man, I wish I could actually invest in this guy because I know nothing about food and I know nothing about hot dog, but I can tell this guy is on the ball, right? So next time you buy a hot dog, you could actually open your Android app and then uh, get a share in his business and help him expand and become a franchise, for example. I agree quite a lot with uh, Stefan on that point. These these sort of applications are going to be a product of the free market. Uh, and if you think about something like Kickstarter, Kickstarter take 7%, I think it is, of anything that's raised. And so we might start seeing, oh, there's a, there's a decentralized Kickstarter that's come up, which is, which is great. But, uh, but then, you know, it's even though it's 0%, then there's people just run off with the money and stuff. So then there's then another application for, you know, insuring the Kickstarter and that might only take 2%. So, so it'll basically be down to, yeah, where, where are the pressure points? Where are, where are people losing the most money? Yeah, I can certainly say from personal experience, I've done quite a few Kickstarter Indiegogo projects and, uh, failure, failure to deliver has been a huge problem. I mean, I think most of them did not live up to the promise. Um, and I think that, that can be an issue. You know, if you, if we talk about, I find, you know, economically, what you're talking about, Stefan, this is 
absolutely revolutionary, so interesting, groundbreaking. The idea that, you know, any anyone can kind of sell shares of the company or sell these tokens that then can be used to buy things in the company. So the value of those corresponds to the value of the company, you know, totally revolutionary. But if you look at, you know, for example, uh, Bitcoin ITO, IPOs or these uh, kind of Bitcoin stock markets, those things, I think this is actually an area where lack of regulation can be very, very problematic and very dangerous. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a place where a lot of people with very questionable intentions go. And uh, so uh, mm-hmm. I think it's also very dangerous where we are uh, heading with this. You know, like, uh, like Max said, we could imagine a, a, a scenario by which uh, people could pay a little bit more and subscribe to a consumer protection service uh, that would function as an insurance or as a broker between uh, yourself, the client, and the actual derivative uh, in case uh, the derivatives uh, sort of data feeds are compromised. And that's what actually is happening in the world today. If you look at uh, people who are trading whether derivatives today, they get a data feed from NASA and they have no real guarantee uh, that it's actually NASA or that the uh, chap that's actually behind the computer entering all this data doesn't have a, a gun pointed to its head. So what they do is they create this buffer by enabling uh, brokerage or services uh, which are themselves insured against fraud and in- transactions are instant, right? It's not like, oh, it's been raining today, ergo, boom, all the contracts trigger. Well, that would be silly because that will be so immediate. There'll be no recourse. Uh, you want to be able to build this mechanism for recourse that are potentially even optional. So people can choose to take that extra risk because they may have traded with this operator prior and they they trust its reputation. Or maybe they don't because they never traded with this guy and they're like, oh, I better get insured myself. Maybe 3% of my total transaction fee isn't that bad on this particular deal, for example. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that is where that could go. I, I guess my fear here is that first people will build the decentralized Kickstarter There'll be all kinds of fraud. And then, you know, people will try to build those things later, but there will definitely be a, a time where, you know, you have the, fir- the one without the ladder or one works, but not the other. And there'll be, I think the, the fraud problem is going to be huge. There's, I think there's, there's an interesting, well, the, the other side of this is, yes, the, the fraud problem is going to, may be, or may be huge, but if we're talking about a Kickstarter style operation that's also like a combination with essentially an IPO in a company, um, though, though at a very, very early stage, we're essentially talking about the average consumer going out and putting money into venture capital. So, so we shouldn't be expecting every single thing to work out. Like, like failure is still an option. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But the idea is, right, you buy uh, shares of a company, uh, you know, if that happens today, this is, you know, the, it is made sure that those shares actually exist, uh, you know, there's a contract, notarized, all of that. Uh, but, you know, if I just sell shares, you know, if we sell shares of Epicenter Bitcoin and there's no... There's absolutely no, you know, to some guys in Argentina or who knows, and there's no accountability here and there's no one who checks, for example, what do you do with the pro- the profits? Do you actually pay them out or did you sell five times as many shares as you said you would? Or is, uh, it's, it's tricky. I think it's going to be very interesting how some people solve that 
But I'm slightly skeptical to just the, the kind of, we're just going to sell those shares or sell those tokens. Mm, I think I think that's a good point. Um, if you look at what's happened with uh, empty Gox or empty Gox, um, it's it's fascinating <laughs> to me to see that uh, you have this beautiful thing, Bitcoin. Its most interesting property is that it's yours, yours only, yours to keep, yours to cherish and keep safe. And yet people trusted a centralized entity for a decentralized currency. Uh, yeah, they run out with a, they run away with the money. What a surprise, you know, uh, to some extent. That's, that's why, you know, we, we also try to not necessarily discourage because it'll always be possible, but to create uh, a centralized website that talks to the underlying Ethereum blockchain and promises the moon. Uh, we are providing alternatives to this model. We're providing a decentralized GUI, uh, that will be signed, cryptography signed, uh, uh, backed by a reputation system uh, that people can then uh, study. The code will be entirely open state, so everybody can go and read through it. Uh, there's mechanism to protect ourselves from this type of fraud, just like there's mechanisms uh, to protect Bitcoin from Gavin Anderson assigning himself 10 billion Bitcoins uh, by modifying the source code, right? We all know that's not possible because of the way Bitcoin works. Uh, same thing here. I just want to kind of maybe this is a good uh, opportunity to uh, talk about uh, this new proposal of uh, side chains, and I'd like to get you guys' thoughts on how it compares to Ethereum and what Ethereum is trying to do. Uh, we spoke about side chains briefly last week, um, and uh, I've been uh, just kind of doing a bit of research about how uh, how these work. So, can, can you perhaps? Um, explain uh, what is a side chain and, and, and how it compares to what Ethereum is trying to build. Yeah, sidechains are something that came up in uh, in November last year, I believe. Uh, there were discussions about it. The idea is you can do a one-way peg uh, by uh, doing proof of burn on the Bitcoin blockchain and assigning value to some uh, parallel chain. Uh, then somebody came up with a concept of doing a two-way peg. So that is when you create a transaction, the transaction in the second blockchain has a mechanism to burn itself back to the initial blockchain. So what you end up is a, a means of having a two-way peg between those two different currencies. Uh, and that's a very important word, currency. Uh, sidechains are properties of a currency, not protocol. Uh, so if someone was to release, uh, because I think that's the underlying question here, which I've read a lot about on the forums, uh, what if somebody releases a fork of Ethereum where we have a representation of our Ether currency replaced by a Bitcoin sidechain? Uh, that fork will not have the same feature that our Ethereum will. Uh, that fork will not benefit, for example, from the data feeds that already exist in, Bit in Ethereum contracts. In fact, for that matter, it won't even benefit from any contract or whatever decentralized markets liquidity we may have on our chain. Uh, uh, on the other, yeah, sorry. Just let me uh, let me chime in there. So, um, what would stop anyone from forking the data feed as well? Or, I mean, you know, if they're in the Ethereum blockchain, you could get them out of there, or I, I mean, just published a if both. you talk about the, you know, the contacts won't be there, yeah, I certainly agree, right? You will have a, a kind of a network effect. question is how large is it going to be? Well, uh, that's true. That's true about, you know, forget sidechains. It's true. About, it's true today. It's true about like, you know, we have this nice little fork button at the top right of all our GitHub repo. Uh, Ethereum is open source wall to wall. Uh, even our business plan is going to be uh, open source. Our salary model will be open source. What stops someone from cloning Ethereum today? Not, not nothing is the answer. Nothing stops them. In fact, somebody's already done it. Uh, it's called A Ethereum. There's a thread on Bitcoin Talk, I believe. 
uh, amusingly enough, Vitalik went in there and helped them out with their own uh, side project, which is quite, <laughs> quite, quite, <laughs> quite tells you a little bit where we uh, sort of position ourselves on that topic. Uh, we actually welcome that kind of stuff because, you know, we think everybody can benefit from it. Uh, network effect is the answer. Uh, and also, uh, you can't clone uh, the Ethereum people, um, which uh, is, is useful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what we will what we will see though uh, we'll definitely know that we'll have side chains for Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin uh, implemented as contract within our Ethereum within potentially three months of launch. Uh, we think it's an interesting concept and, and we like interoperability, so uh, it makes total sense. Oh, can you can you talk a bit about that? How would that what would that look like? Uh, you know, Bitcoin side chain on the Ethereum network. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll skip the technical detail because some of it goes a, a, above my head as well. Vitalik was talking to me about it yesterday. Uh, but the idea is, you know, you can already build SPV clients uh, on Ethereum uh, that listens to transactions on the Bitcoin, Dogecoin, whatever other chain. Uh, so that's how you can actually foresee things like Bitcoin backed derivatives on Ethereum. So if you listen to what's going on in the blockchain, and if you say, I'll send you three Ether if you send one Bitcoin to this other Bitcoin address, you just need to listen to the Bitcoin blockchain to say, hey, you know, something's been transferred. Action, yes, boom, and the Ether is being unlocked from that smart contract box, so to speak. Uh, you could extend this uh, reasoning to sidechain. So you could actually have a two-way pegging via proof of burn uh, implemented as part of a uh, smart contract. So you could, for example, then be on the Ethereum network and, uh, you know, there's an Ethereum contract. You need to pay, for example, uh, a thousand Dogecoin for, to pay for this contract to be executed. And then you could do that by the peg. So you could have, uh, for example, uh, the monetary unit used there, you could use a uh, Bitcoin or Dogecoin or something like that. No. I don't know if you can, uh, I haven't talked to Vitalik about doing a three-way like you're describing. So Dogecoin to Bitcoin via Ethereum. I mean, that sounds like a cool concept. I'm not sure how that would work. Uh, no, I just, meant, to think I, about. I just meant one or the other, right? But so you Oh, could... one or the other. Yeah. You just basically burn the currency on one and then uh, implement that as a, uh, as a transaction on whatever side chains you created that represents the currency uh, parallel to Bitcoin. Yeah. So, uh, just, just, there's there's, uh, there's just, other ways yeah. to do that, though. Just uh, maybe a tiny detail. But you, in, if you're in the sideways chains thing, I think you don't burn the currency, but you you suspend it. Well, you, you burn the side chains currency if you go back. But on, right. the, on the Bitcoin chain, you would be basically putting into a script that then you can yeah. get it out again if you burn it. Uh, but... This, this, it, it, I find it interesting, this idea that you can uh, mirror the value of another asset or commodity as part of a contract. Uh, CFDs come to mind. Uh, you can also uh, do uh, what Vitalik has referred to as shelling coins, which is like a guessing game that rewards the people who are the closest to the real answer, validated by a, mo a multiplicity of data feeds. Uh, there's various ways to do this at the moment. Um, I don't think we've seen any practical uh, implementation of this on Ethereum uh, because it's so early days. But it's definitely the kind of stuff uh, we're looking into. And actually, I should say the community is looking into. I yeah like, I want to talk about maybe two more things related to this. So one is I actually didn't fall, think about that before, but the thing like of moving bitcoins into Ethereum uh, is I think that's very interesting because it can that's really something that makes it uh, increases the utility. You know I think it makes it possible to do a lot of things more neatly. So then you're an Ethereum contract and you can pay with Bitcoin. 
your Ethereum contract. Well, you could, you could do things like, uh, um, you know, you could do proof of burn on Bitcoin. So you could have a SPV client that listens to uh, uh, money being burnt on Bitcoin and then uh, uh, issue uh, a MetaCoin uh, that would represent Bitcoin on top of Ethereum. Uh, but that, had limit, that has limitation, of course, because it's a one-way uh, uh, move. Uh, but there's ways to do it. Yeah. What I want to... Yeah, that's a great point. What I want to talk about too, just very briefly, is I guess the interesting idea about the sidechains thing is about uh, is that you extend like the utility of the Bitcoin money supply because I think a lot of their thinking is actually about uh, a monetary perspective that you say you'd use Bitcoin or the, the kind of Bitcoin currency, the value in Bitcoin to do all those other other functions. And that's not so much uh, is it better with a sidechain or Ethereum. I guess it's equivalent there. It's more of a, a value judgment or a preference whether you say you'd rather issue new currency as Ether or you rather use the existing one. Of course, there's also economically that has a lot of implications because if you used the Bitcoin one, then you couldn't do the fundraise. You couldn't raise that money that way. Um, it would, you know, it would... For the Ethereum team, it would be a uh, negative. It would be positive for the current Bitcoin holders, right? Especially the ones who have a substantial amount of Bitcoin. So there's these, you know, trade off. Like, 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 like counterparty did or something. Yeah, like counterparty, exactly. I mean, who is counterparty really good for? Uh, it's good for Bitcoin holders, right? Uh, so in a sense, uh, so just briefly. Well, yeah, it's good for them because it's burning the Bitcoin. So whoever is left has more value in their Bitcoin. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So it, essentially, all the value remains in the Bitcoin, uh, in the Bitcoin network. And to the extent that people put money into a counterparty, it, it actually increases the 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 value of the remaining Bitcoins. Oh yeah, we we looked into proof of burn. I mean, as as you know, we had uh, various conversations taking place on our economic channels uh, very early on as to you know what is the uh, uh, ether cell model is going to look like. So obviously, this idea of proof of burn, which is you know let's all drop our guns and and pick up pitchforks in six month time, um, that's um, you know that's that's one way of doing it. Uh, there's only one little problem with that is how do we feed ourselves uh, you know during that gap. Uh, also, the thing to keep in mind is that. And we haven't announced it yet, uh, so obviously this is all uh, a bit new. Uh, but we we have big plans in terms of what we want to do with the Ethereum Vision. There's an Ethereum 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, 5.0 we're already thinking about uh, using soft forking mechanisms, um, as well as you know some of the uh, so-called pre-mine of Ethereum. Uh, that money will go into three things. The first one is a not-for-profit organization that will re do research in those very complex, difficult projects that we talked about, such as blockchain bloat, speed of transaction, useful proof of work, what about proof of stake, you know, that kind of stuff. And that research will be made available free of charge to the community, and it will be led by uh, Vitalik and uh, also Neil Koblitz, the uh, co-inventor of the elliptic curve encryption that's used in Bitcoin today that are going to do uh, work on this type of stuff. Uh, the second thing is a for-profit entity, uh, and that's a question that comes back time and time and time again. How is it the Ethereum team going to make their money? Well, the for-profit is very simple. It's going to be an accelerator, uh, just like uh, any accelerator out there, investing in startup that uses Ethereum or deploy application on top of the Ethereum infrastructure to try to build that ecosystem. GUI applications is a good example. I've never seen any GUI built by academics that actually 
you know, kicked ass, so to speak. Uh, private companies do very well at that. And then the third part of that, a tiny fraction, uh, less than 5%, will go towards rewarding the investors, the founders, uh, the people who were the early adopters uh, into the project and pay back their salaries, so to speak. Uh, that's pretty much the plan. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you're pointing out uh, something really important, which is that uh, there are two functions to what you guys are doing, or what the fundraiser does. Is One is distribution, and the two is fundraising. Now, if you replace it with something like uh, sidechains, uh, you have a different distribution mechanism, and one can argue whether that's better or not. But what you definitely lose is the fundraising thing, and obviously that is can be enormously powerful to build something big. And I think from all the enthusiasm about Ethereum and, you know, the, how many people are involved, also the quality of people involved, I, I strongly suspect it's going to be a very, very successful fundraiser and you'll actually end up raising a lot of money that will help to, you know, develop this at a really high speed. Yeah, and that's, that's the point. And again, complete transparency is what you can expect. Um, even the business model will be open source. One thing that's actually quite uh, interesting and I hope will become the model for all sort of VC 2.0 type uh, initiatives in the future is that even our salaries will be public uh, as well as how we get to that figure. So they're going to be formulaic in nature and they'll say things like, okay, so you live in England, you have this level of seniority, you have X years of experience, you're doing this function, uh, computer says you're worth X and that's going to be public to everyone. And how, like, so you, you talked about people getting involved. How can people get involved in this project? Because um, it it, uh, it seems like uh, you guys could 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 use some more community uh, involvement to help build this even further. Uh, absolutely. So I think uh, the the biggest one for me is meetups. I absolutely love our meetups. We have uh, now. I'm checking the. Uh, we have. Um, can you still hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. Uh, we have 51 meetup groups in the world, 2,800 people involved. Um, now, obviously, that's not necessarily full time. Um, and in terms of how can people get involved, well, go on GitHub and, uh, you know, contribute code. That would be great. We're currently... Um, you know, we'd love to see nothing more than uh, reference implementation of Ethereum in all sorts of language. I know some guys doing stuff with Clojure. I know some guys doing stuff with Node.js. You know, they're going to need help. Obviously, we have the Python, Go, and C++ reference client that need to be uh, uh, improved constantly. Um, in terms of if you're not a programmer, start a meetup group, uh, write blog articles, write tutorials. I mean, obviously, we, we have a lot of, uh, you know, it's a long road ahead. We're not by any, any uh, way, shape, or form saying this is going to be easy. It's not. Uh, just, you know, having a sequential memory hard or uh, CPU-friendly um, proof-of-work uh, algorithm is a challenge in itself. So, yeah, a lot of work ahead. Excellent. Um, Max, do you want to weigh in on something else on Ethereum? Or otherwise, I think perhaps we can, we can also talk a bit about your other project. Um, yeah, so I mean, my, my other project uh, called CryptoNet is very similar to Ethereum. A lot of the design has been directly inspired by it. I think it's it, like the white paper um, has been like since December, at least, has been a fantastic resource. It's it, the, the system that Ethereum is built on is very, very well designed. Um, what I was saying before about distributed exchange, one of the sort of things that I that I thought uh, sort of should exist that doesn't currently is the idea of 
a library that just lets you create blockchain-based structures. So so Ethereum is like one of these structures, and it's designed to allow you to create any dApp that you want. Um, Bitcoin is obviously the first structure. But outside of, uh, you know, those and a few others, we haven't really seen anything uh, built on sort of novel blockchains yet. So um, for about the last two months or so, I've been working on this with a friend of mine. Um, the idea is that you'll – so it's written in Python at the moment. And the idea is you say, oh, from CryptoNet, import CryptoNet. And from CryptoNet.standard, import like blocks, headers, transactions, etc. And then you just change the bits of this network that you want to change. So – Say if you want to if you want to dap then uh, then you can write you know a dap and all and all it does is alter wait, wait, a state a in a very particular a way. Distributed autonomous something I assume. A a, a, dist- a distributed application. Okay, so yeah. so that's what um, I I think that's so it's sort of we've got like you know a, a DAC uh, like a decentralized autonomous corporation and I sort of think of those as like collections of dapps like a dap does something very specific so it'll like keep track of the Bitcoin blockchain or it will allow you to, you know, to, to, uh, bet on the outcome of some data feed or, uh, um, something like that. And so when you collect all these together, you end up with, uh, a network anyway. So, so I've this, the idea of this library is to be able to create these sort of networks in isolation. Um, one of the disadvantages of Ethereum is that you need, uh, ether in order to power your contracts. Whereas if you have a network of people who who consent to a particular application running, then you don't need any fee. It's everyone will just do it uh, because they want the end result. Um, and so this is meant to, I guess, CryptoNet is meant to cater to a slightly different audience. Um, but it's it's something where you could you could create you know a distributed uh, voting system or perhaps a, a a standalone blockchain that where each block instead of having a proof of work is signed by a central authority or or stuff like this. I really want to see like the the blockchain is for me a, a, an awesome data structure. Uh, but outside of money, we haven't seen many sort of applications of it yet. So that's that's where I'd really like to start seeing innovation. So let me try to uh, rephrase that, and then maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong or right. Uh, sure. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to build a library. So if I want to go and I say I want to do something a bit like Ethereum for a certain project, uh, but I don't want to use Ethereum, uh, then I can kind of use your library and sort of uh, metaphorically drag and drop my thing together, and then I have that, and it's totally independent of a, a currency, a mining network, etc. And then I deploy that sort of on my own with perhaps the other people that are interested in this. Is, is, does that, is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much right. Um, by default, there, like, there will be mining so that, you know, you can run things like a currency without getting into trouble. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that's that's. So, so how is the mining going to work? Who's going to? Are they going to get transaction fees? Uh, who's in what currency will they be paid? Or? So that's that's completely up to the the person who invents the library, right? I mean, so an altcoin is a very simple distributed application at its at its bare framework, and all it needs to do is just reassign balances. So you write a little contract that says when you get this, then take the the sender of that contract and you know, remove their balance and then add it to the, to the recipient. Um, 
uh, things like that. So, you, so the idea is that you simply describe what the blockchain should do, and then the rest is taken care of. The the network is taken care of, um, the serialization, the blockchain, all that is taken care of, and it's just that that layer on top. Whether that be that you want to make a currency, or you want to make Ethereum, or a voting network, or that sort of thing, at where this is sort of aimed. And so, what are the types of DApps uh, that are included in this library? Like, what are some of the most basic? Uh, applications that come that would come included in in this library. So when when um uh hopefully hopefully we're going to have uh sort of a a proper proof of concept done um in a month or so um with that we're going to have a proof of concept of a distributed market um so that'll be uh that'll sort of be there but that's an example in in terms of the library itself the only uh real DAP that'll be, uh, that I think it needs to be shipped is, uh, some sort of monetary framework, um, underneath and, and to deal with, you know, when you get a transaction, where do the messages go and things like that. Um, but the idea is that the, the DAPs are able to be written by whoever's, uh, using, using the library. And so this library will, um, so the idea is that people build, the individual dApps and that they're included in the library, uh, so it's an open source uh, community effort. I uh, yeah, they like the dApps can be included in the library, um, but uh, and it is and it's most certainly open source. It's most certainly community based. Um, one of the so for example, one of the one of the use cases that I've I've got in my head that that's way down the line, um, but possible is say the Ethereum blockchain, uh, you've, you've got this really cool idea for a distributed application, but Ethereum's become too expensive. Um, so you write your, your, your various contracts in Ethereum, um, and then there's like a, you, you select, you know, say three or four of them to work together, and then there's like a compile to network button, and then it, that just spits out an alternate chain that only does those like three or four things that you specified. Um, but it runs completely on its own and completely outside of Ethereum. Um, and only people that want to partake in it, partake in it. Okay. I see. Uh, and where, is there anybody where people can check this out? Like do you have a website up or a uh, GitHub? Um, yeah, so it's, so it's, there's, it's on GitHub. It's in a very, very early stage. I'm, um, sort of getting the, 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 the blockchain stuff is essentially done um, because of the structure of the library uh, all the transaction execution is actually built into the into the data structure of the blocks themselves not the blockchain um, and then so so you'll be able to sort of choose the level that you want to sort of cut it off at so if you want to you know do things from the block up like you know from the right at the ground up then you can um, so I'm putting the I'm, I'm writing the the structures on top of blocks to start to deal with transactions and dapps and stuff like that now um, the organization that my friend and I are, are forming to sort of launch this under um, is called Eudaimonia Research uh, spelled E-U-D-E uh, M-O-N-I-A is that Monia? Yep um, and, our, and our website is eudaimonia.io so there you can click on research and that's got a link to our GitHub and that's where all the code is Yeah that's fascinating I, I still have some slight difficulties understanding it exactly but I'm sure uh, once you're uh, further along and maybe we see some implementations and applications uh, will will all make you know it will become more clear as well i think that's that's fascinating with any of these things you know i don't know how often i've heard people talking about distributed voting system etc and and we still ha- we, you know 
uh, I don't know if anybody actually ever used, you know, if anybody uses this kind of thing or it's, it's just something that all these people are working on, but yeah, kind of a practical application is like, now I'm going to use this to run the meetup group or something. You know, I think that's, that's where it's going to be really interesting when you're going to, you're actually going to be able to use those in a real world context. Yeah, but to see, I mean, I agree. I think that we need to see a real kind of, uh, good use case for this where, uh, a practical use case, but the fate of these things actually working is people using cryptocurrency. So in, in order to, to run, uh, uh, a decentralized autonomous corporation, your clients need to be using a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency. So I don't know before, about that. So. No, you don't think so. I mean, if you if you talk about, I mean, maybe Stefan, you can weigh in on that. But I think if you have like an Ethereum app store, uh, people down Ethereum app, like why do they need use Bitcoin? Yeah, there's various ways to uh, to. Act- uh, get into the system, so to speak, to get the ball rolling. Uh, Ripple is one way, of course. No, but I mean, Ripple, if, like if you're going to be running a, a, a DAC, um, your customers need to be paying you in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. Well, imagine imagine a DAC that has SPV clients built in for not just Bitcoin, but also Ethereum and Dogecoin. And so you can actually pay it in any of those yeah, currencies. Yeah, I agree, but they're not going to be accepting euros, is what I mean. Well, maybe they will. Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe you can have a, a layer where... You know, you'd have some service, you know, you pa- you maybe buy a voucher at the kiosk or something, and then it, it gives you credit for, uh, you know, in that application. Uh, you don't even know what it's doing on the back end. You know, if on the back end, someone takes that 100 or 10 euros, you know, buy some Bitcoins, takes their cut, you know, maybe then buy some Ethereum and deposits those in the account, then you just see 10 credits. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I don't yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I know what you're saying here, but the the barrier to entry to all of these things and the uh, the point at which these things will take off to me is really when you have interoperability between fiat currency and crypto and where people can easily buy crypto and start interacting with these new uh, these new models um, until that happens. Until you can easily buy a Bitcoin voucher or whatever cryptocurrency voucher in a newspaper kiosk or until your bank allows you to like easily switch from euros to to Bitcoin or whatever um, other cryptocurrency in your in your online banking or until people actually are getting paid with Bitcoin, that um, mass uh, network effect will not occur. I agree that, you know, we need to limit friction. Uh, friction is the uh, the death of any app that actually would be based on a network effect. Facebook is Facebook because Facebook is free. The downside of that is uh, when you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Uh, so uh, in, in that regard, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, but I'm hearing good things about things like ZipZap, for example, in the UK is going to open uh, 29,000 news agents uh, to be able to uh, sell Bitcoin uh, to users using a very simple sort of bit card type uh, mechanism uh, they probably don't call it bit card but it's it's the ideas there um, and yeah the more we can limit friction the more dApps will be popular and that's uh, that's a critical point ideally we want to see a, a fiat to uh, to to crypto decentralized exchange well one of the things we we haven't talked about is and I think that there is going to be a bank at some point who does this uh, let's say, you know, HSBC starts an Ethereum contract and there's a button that allows you to, you know, move euros from your account into, 
uh, sort of their their Ethereum contract, and you can transmit them internally then. But now we've been able to bridge the the gap between uh, the legal construct that is you know our our fiat currency and the cryptographic construct that are that is you know Bitcoin and Ethereum, etc. Yeah, let's not use right. HSBC as an example. <laughs> I think I think in the context of this podcast, we should not use HSBC no. as an example of a. Of, a, of, of anything, anything never yeah. mention it again. Yeah. But uh, but I understand what you're saying, and and I think that uh, see what you, you know uh, to come back to the Zip Zap. Uh, like I was at the grocery store yesterday, and right at the at the register, I've got a Google Play card, and I was actually thinking about this, like um, you know, if I want to give because my mom just bought a tablet, and I'm going to give her a Google Play card so that she can just she doesn't have to put her credit card in, which I know she's not going to want to do. So until we we get and until we get to this. Um, very uh, frictionless uh, purchasing uh, model where we can just buy bitcoins from a from a kiosk or you know where you can just grab a half a bitcoin or whatever uh, at your grocery store. Um, it's it's gonna be, it's gonna be a challenge to get people to start using these these uh, these DACs. now. Again, much like the internet, at, at the dawn of the internet, it was used only by geeks and mostly used by geeks and then kind of more technically savvy people. But as things evolve, you know, you have a, a network effect of obviously and more and more people um, getting on that boat. So I think it'll take time, but uh, but the, the, the point at which that starts to take off is when cryptocurrencies, uh, there's less friction between fiat and crypto. And this is what we've been saying since all along, right? Yeah. The, no, the, prob- the problem yeah. is when you move from fiat to crypto. Yeah, no, it's a huge point, pain point, that's for sure. And uh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's definitely slowing down massively the development. But, you know, it's, it's something I think that gradually, gradually, albeit much more slowly than we'd want to, gets better. Now, what are your thoughts on um, – I've, I've been hearing a lot of things, people saying – like the the cryptocurrency um, revolution is going to happen very very quickly. And coming back again to Ray Kurzweil and the singularity and his theory that evolution happens uh, in a uh, an exponential way, uh, where we've seen the internet revolution happen in 15, 20 years. Let's say the mobile revolution took four or five years, or perhaps less. Uh, the cryptocurrency revolution. Uh, from what I've been hearing from thinkers and and people in the community is that this is going to take off really quickly. Like within, within a year or two, uh, we're going to be reaching some sort of critical mass or mass adoption. What are your guys' thoughts on this? Do you think that this is a linear, um, there's a, a, a linear model or that we are in fact in an exponential growth rate? I don't think anyone can predict the future, so I'm not going to hazard a guess. <laughs> no, I'm not asking you to predict, but you know, what are your what are your thoughts on it? What what are your feelings about how the bit the cryptocurrency uh, and you know, kind of like larger sense decentralized um, systems revolution is going to take place? Uh, going back to your initial point, Sebastian, I think we need to see practical applications that solve real world problems that people know they have not problems that they don't know they have. When I tried to explain Bitcoin to my dear mother, she didn't get it because she said, well, I have this NFC card. I can just tap to pay. And then I don't have to worry about keeping my money safe like cash under the mattress because the bank does that for me. I realize I'm paying a fee. Now, the flip side of that is, of course, she didn't know that uh, currency today was no 
longer, uh, you know, uh, backed by the gold standard, believe it or not. Yeah, it's I'm, been I'm, quite I'm always amazed at how little people actually know that. You know, like, no, no, but you know, my money is backed by gold. I'm like, what? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Um, or, or, or Will, the bank will never take my money, right? I mean, Cyprus, anyone? You know, it's it's ridiculous. But uh, until people realize they have the problem, then you need to find other means to uh, to reach out to them. Um, I don't think we should push for it either. I think it should come naturally. Let's find some killer apps or killer dApps, I should say, um, and that will get some eyebrows raised. When you've really disrupted one market, uh, the other verticals will quickly follow suit and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Maybe we should pay attention to this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of uh, get some uh, cool sci-fi theories. Yeah. What about <laughs> Max? What's your view? So, so uh, Sebastian, you mentioned, uh, you know, the internet revolution. And I think, you know, we, we need to sort of consider this. We're only halfway through it. Like half the world doesn't have access to the internet yet. Um, I, we're, we're seeing, we're still, we're at that, that point in sort of the S curve of, of greatest adoption. And if we're talking about, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, then the the primary sort of innovation, the piece of technology that it gave us was distributed timestamping. We now have a way to order things without trusting anyone. And the full repercussions of that for society, I think, are going to take some decades to sink in. Like, you know, maybe at 2050, we'll see sort of the starting of settling down. And that's the point where you know, we, we're going to have cryptographic networks to replace governments and that sort of thing. I think it's it's going to go that far. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, good call on the uh, half of the world not having the internet. Um, the flip side of that is that some countries, um, uh, my family, uh, some of my family is from the Philippines. Uh, when I go there on on holiday, I can't stop but notice nobody, no one has a landline, not one person, but they all have smartphones. Um, they skip mm. generations, just like uh, M-Pesa in Kenya. Uh, you know, now you have an entire country. I think it's 70% of uh, their GDP going through uh, M-Pesa. Um, it wouldn't be far-fetched to imagine that if presented with a valid Bitcoin-based out alternative, people would actually adopt it fairly rapidly because they're not encumbered by all this, um, you know, previous experience with other devices or other technology. They just go for whatever is useful right now. Yeah, so uh, let me also kind of weigh in on that question you asked us, yeah. So I, I think, you know, there's a website called Bitcoin Pulse where that kind of tracks a lot of metrics, you know, from like how many wallets are there on blockchain.info, how many transactions are there, how many uh, physical places accept one, etc. Now, if you look at that, and, you know, I think if you look at any sort of data source, it's totally clear that Bitcoin is growing exponentially. Uh, now, if you compare that to the, you know, mobile smartphone revolution that indeed happened so quickly, you know, if you think back to iPhone, I, I my suspicion is that this is going to take longer. And I think one of the primary reasons is regulation, you know, because it's still, I think that is, it's not going to kill Bitcoin, but I think it can slow it down dramatically. And it, it is already slowing it down dramatically. Uh, and then I think when you talk about the like really far-fetched potentials of this, of course, you know, who knows what the, you know, even if we talk about the internet, there's so many more things that will be done. And in a sense, you can think of Bitcoin as an internet application as well. So, uh, of course, those will take much longer to, you know, really be realized. 
Well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. So, you know, take the example of the Philippines and the remittance market. Bitcoin is the best way to send money abroad today. I can't think of a better way. Honestly, it's the best. Uh, and yet I'm not using it. Why? Because in the Philippines, they have only one exchange and the family I have over there is located pretty far away from them. Uh, do not know how to, well, don't have a bank account for that matter. Um, and don't know how to convert Bitcoin to fiat, uh, because there's no local Bitcoin site over there. Uh, so regulation is what has stop those markets or those exchanges from um, uh, sort of proliferating and, 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 and expanding. Um, and it's a worry. I mean, in a sense, I, uh, I think uh, if you look at people calling for more regulations because they want to be able to be comfortable to start a business without going to jail, um, the flip side of that is actually slowing the growth of Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, uh, I think we've been talking for quite a while. So uh, maybe can you both tell people where to check out um, your work or the projects you're involved in? Sure, thanks. So uh, for, for Ethereum, it's ethereum.org. Uh, we have forums at forum.ethereum.org. Uh, and uh, if I had uh, one living note, I would say keep, uh, you know, keep in mind the poor developers that are still building Facebook for cats or yet another clone of Twitter. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you can uh, – uh, I, I live at uh, eudaimonia.io, as I said before, or you can check out my personal site, which is xk.io, and that's got links to everything that I've mentioned. Yeah, I was looking for eudaimonia. I, I forgot that you actually had it listed on your website, so I'm going to look for it there. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, guys, uh, for joining us today. It was lots of fun. I think – very, tech, very tech, kind of really far ahead, some of it, but I think it's super interesting to talk about these topics. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, hopefully it was informative. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, well, thanks so much. And uh, some things, yeah, if you want to check out our website, epicenterbitcoin.com, uh, still uh, kind of in development, but, you know, we, uh, hopefully it will be better soon. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at epicenterptc. Uh, and also leave us a review if you can. That would be very appreciated. It's how people find the show and uh, it would help us tremendously. And like Brian said at the beginning of the show, go to uh, blog.blockchain.com. And if you scroll down there, you'll see the post for uh, nominating uh, uh, the most influential podcast at the Blockchain Awards 2014. And so if you could nominate Blockchain.info, Bitcoin. Blockchain info, not blockchain.com. Oh no! It, it is block blockchain.com. Yeah. Yeah, the blog the blog is on blockchain.com. Okay. Um, yeah. So if you could nominate us, that'd be great. We'd appreciate it. And uh, finally, if you want to sign up for a newsletter, it goes out every Friday. Um, so you know, it's kind of the most important news and developments. You can do that at epicenterbitcoin.com/newsletter. <laughs> okay. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Okay. Thanks. See you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Ciao.